we do training of boards and executive teams. And I'm so stunned every time we do, we're starting at AI 101. Very, very basic for many, many executives, particularly in Australia, where we are a long way behind embracing a knowledge of AI than other countries. Executives have very little understanding of what AI is, and that poses a huge risk to their companies. And I know that Accenture released a study that showed that 58% of CEOs globally have a concern that AI will be the greatest risk they have in creating unintended harms in the world. So that's six in 10 CEOs now sitting up at night worried about this. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam, and you're listening to The Foil Podcast. Where we talk about the opportunities and the risks of the data age. What it means for you and what it might mean for us all. Dr. Katrina Wallace, welcome to The Foil and thank you so much. Today is International Women's Day and I'm really looking forward to hearing about what you've been working on in this space. The theme is Break the Bias. Katrina, what should we know about today as it relates to gender equity and the AI world? Well, happy International Women's Day to you, Christy, and to your whole team and and to the world. Look, there could be no more important time than International Women's Day to talk about a threat to women or particular bias against women that is becoming more and more prevalent every day as we see the technology sector, the tech giants, artificial intelligence, machine learning, the metaverse really starting to come into into mainstream activity. So I think we're probably just ending one whole phase of bias towards women, which is in in the human 3D world or 2D world, now being lifted into, into the 3D digital world, digital economy, metaverse. So these are the things that are troubling me at the moment. Can you tell me about what's happening in the metaverse? I've been reading about sexual assaults in the metaverse. What has been going on? Right. So a good place to start would be to talk about what the metaverse is. So the metaverse is actually not yet a single digital or virtual universe. It's actually a number of organisations who are fighting to to take the place to be the predominant provider of a metaverse. So we have Meta, who used to be Facebook, who have got Horizon Worlds. We have Decentraland, Sandbox, Upland, uh, Roblox, Stageverse, a whole range. There's probably 10 main companies. Uh, Fortnite, uh, who's owned by Epic Games, they also have have a metaverse. So it is essentially a, a 3D virtual and augmented reality world that is owned and hosted by a technology company. And in that world, the the human uh, presents as an avatar and can do various things. So it can play games, can attend concerts, can go shopping, can buy property. And the facilitation or the currency of the metaverses appear to be cryptocurrencies and NFTs. So within these uh, universes or worlds, the exchange is, is through d- digital currency, which is also very interesting. So, so that's what a metaverse is. And it's accessed uh, not exclusively, but typically through virtual reality 
goggles and you essentially, it's, it's an immersive experience. So that's exciting in itself and it will provide a huge amount of wonderful things to humanity. So for people who can't travel or people who can't access experiences in, in a human physical world, then these things will be made available to them. So that's the great part of it. For example, yesterday, a team member and I met in a virtual workroom and, and had a meeting you know, fully in our avatars uh, in a workroom where we could set, you know, write things on the whiteboard, look at each other's desktops and and be, uh, even though we were separate locations, we could actually be together. So, so that's the metaverse. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so if we think about uh, how quickly this has been adopted, we know that uh, one of the metaverses, Decentraland, which has actually been around since 2017, has about three 300,000 active users. Uh, we have last year in 2021, there was about half a billion dollars of real estate, virtual real estate sold in the middle of, I'm not sure if it's Decentraland or Sandbox. Snoop Dogg has bought the main lot and then there are other people now buying properties so that they can be close to this star. And properties sell for up to three and a half million dollars for blocks of lands in these in these universes. So they are just some ways for us to start thinking about what the metaverse is. Now, that's exciting. We love that. However, just as you mentioned, Christy, there are other now stories coming out almost every month about risks and harms, particularly towards women that are occurring in these metaverses. So there was a woman yeah, called Nina Jane Patel, a 43-year-old mother who, who lived in Britain. She was a beta tester for Meta in Horizon World. And within 60 seconds of this very experienced virtual reality journey arriving into the metaverse of Meta Horizons World, she was approached by four or five male avatars, sexually harassed, and so much so that the way she described it was that she was virtually gang raped with them abusing her, touching her, and uh, so much so that she she was not able to instigate any protection. There are safety zones that you can instigate. She was not able to do that and she just had a highly traumatic experience. So human behaviour amplified in the metaverse where there are no protections, Katrina. Is that that's how I'm interpreting what you're saying. Is that right? So there will be some protections. And as a result, well, interestingly, the protection that existed in the Horizon Worlds already before this incident was something called a safety zone. So if you are in Horizons World and you feel unsafe, you, the user, instigate, instigate the safety zone. Now, in this particular situation, Patel was so shocked she didn't have time to do that. And so she was attacked. Now, if we just look at that from a technology perspective, that is putting the onus on the user, not the onus on the platform provider to provide this safety in the platform. Mm. Interestingly, uh, when, when Meta commented, uh, one of the Meta executives, Joe Osborne, made a comment that this was uh, they were, you know, they were unhappy that this had happened, but that this was a great learning experience for Meta. And as a result, they went and built something called a personal boundary, which is now like a little force field that goes around the user. So people can't actually touch you. Now, that's great. However, roll it back a bit. I cannot see how that wasn't apparent to the designers of this platform before this woman was virtually raped. Like, why wasn't that built immediately? Who is designing? 
designing this platform so that a woman can be, and this is only one story of many others, can be virtually sexually abused in the platform. So that to me, this this should not be a learning experience for the tech giants. The gaming and social media worlds have been going for decades. This shouldn't be a learning. And that's the great, great disturbing factor that this should not be like, you don't build a rapey platform. How about that as your first, you know, tick off your design program? I'm really interested to follow the thread of comparing these virtual worlds with you know video games where there is obviously a, a long history of entrenchment of exactly those kind of behaviors that you're discussing where previously it was you know within the context of a game what i'm really interested to find out from you is how you think we should be thinking about these kinds of harms is this just an extension of those kinds of social norms that in this case has reached a new level of potentially uh, you know harmful interaction where somebody has the the simulated experience of something. Right, Adam, that's correct. So so why the metaverse poses such a significant challenge is that it's at a whole next level of immersion. So, so the description of the metaverse, it's Im- immersive technology. So even though some, you know, some games, of course, use virtual reality, this is like a whole world that you're in. So, so it's, it's next level. And those, there are no real laws or regulations. There are potentially guidelines and, and frameworks to guide behavior. But it's almost, uh, if you choose not to subscribe to those, then you can just become a bad actor. And it's interesting, and, and I understand this to be correct, that if there is a perpetrator who causes some harm on a platform, such as male avatars who attacked Patel, then the tech giant does not have the obligation to make the identities of those people known. They, they remain anonymous. So this whole concept of anonymity is, is still a challenge. There are no real laws or rules in, in a lot of these platforms. And the way I would describe it is it's like the inventing of a whole new world with no government. And the tech corporations are running these worlds with the motivations and incentives of a for-profit business. So they are incentivized to have as many participants and users as possible for these participants to engage as much as possible. And this is all done in a fully immersive experience at scale. And so the dangers that we've seen in more 2D type tech, social media and in gaming, we will now see at scale. I'm just interested to pick that up on on legislation there because the UK, as you know, has introduced the Age Appropriate Design Code. It was written to law a couple of years ago as part of the Data Protection Act. Uh, And what it says is that technology companies really must follow the best interests of children and make it age appropriate in terms of uh, the applications and access to services and or uh, the environment that children get access to. And the code prohibits you know, big tech from actually and nudging techniques that encouraging children to give up more of their privacy than they would otherwise choose to and calls on companies to minimise the data they collect around children. So there is a framework in place for this kind of thing, Katrina. 
How do you how do you see that you know governing uh, the metaverse? Well, yeah, absolutely. Frameworks like that should apply to the metaverse, and I think Australia has also done quite a good job on um, data privacy and child child protection within within digital spheres. So I think that that is uh, very good. So the challenge for me is though that there's still it's still kind of retrospective. It's the harms occur, and then some mediation is done as a result. So there is a a lot of people who are very fearful about children presenting in the metaverse and what might happen to them. Because as as we all know, it is very easy to trick up your age so that you can you can play a game or get on social media or go into the metaverse. You know, you don't you don't need to be a verifying anything to to get in there. So there's a huge risk that those existing rules or policies may exist in certain countries but then may may not really play out in practice in in the metaverse and if they do who is then held accountable is it the perpetrator who's broken a child safety law is it the tech giants that have allowed it to happen i still think that's not particularly clear and whose responsibility is it to act when there there has been a, a an issue that you described just back to the personal impact so you know can you speak to the psychological impact of these kinds of situations what what is likely to occur for people who have experienced these kinds of assaults in the, in the metaverse right so the way uh, patel describes her experience is as if she had been virtually raped that was her experience it was the same psychological and physiological response to uh, to being uh, abused or or concept of virtual rape. Now, what we already know stands in legislation is that you can be sexually abused or assaulted without physically being touched. So that already already stands. Now, this means do we have to explore the whole concept of what is rape, what is sexual abuse? If an avatar is touching another avatar, is that what does that constitute? So these are all new concepts that will start to be explored. There's another uh, example of a non-physical uh, or sexual incident that I can also share with you, which was in uh, one of the metaverses, I think it was in Upland, where there was a, a gentleman by the name of Yanko Rotgers who had bought property in, in this metaverse and he had a squatter come in to his virtual property and the squatter was renting out Yanko's property like an Airbnb, like a virtual Airbnb and and earning not a lot, like four cents a day or something similar. Anyway, so he posted a news article going, what do I do? What do I do about the fact I've got a virtual squatter in my virtual property on, on Upland? And he went to one of the Stanford legal professors and ran it by him. And the professor said, look, we really don't know. It's <laughs> unprecedented. We don't know. There are no specific laws for you to evict your squatter who's selling your services to as an Airbnb related service. To get into these metaverses, you actually have to have a crypto wallet. So for example, I use MetaMask and you sign in with your crypto wallet before you can actually do anything in in the games. And so I think the logic there is that if you're interacting, buying non-fungible tokens, so digital assets, 
and exchanging things, then there is some safety and security because it'll it'll sit on the blockchain. So there there is at least that part has been thought through, and that seems to work quite well. And uh, I have like a great story of two two of my my sons, uh, Jake, who's mid thirties, has now left his full time job and gone into full time forex, crypto, and NFT trading. And my other stepson, Jaden, has just left his full-time job to go into full-time designing and building Japanese and European virtual homes to sell in the metaverse. And, and within six months, he's had he has 20 staff now working for him. Yeah, it's an incredible uh, world that we are building and evolving uh, in the metaverse. And Katrina, can I just understand then a little bit more about, I mean, that's that's a huge landscape of future possibility and risk. Can I bring it back to algorithms and sexism? There's been a lot of conversation over the last number of years as data science, AI and machine learning has been used across many types of applications, whether it's um, for in, in financial services, whether it's for uh, public benefit programming policy. Can you share with us what? why is there an issue around AI and gender equity. Can you unpack that issue for us? Yeah, I sure can. So let's let's go back to the very simple understanding of what a AI is. So if we think that it is software that replicates or mimic human intelligence, it's just an umbrella statement. Because AI, you know, there is no one definitive definition of AI. So for a better way, particularly for listeners to understand this, is that AI is, is a number of components. It's it's data, it's algorithm, it's analytics, it's some decision making and it's some automation. So go through there. Data, algorithms, analytics, decision making, automation. They'd be the, the core components. Not all AI has all of those, but they would they would be the basic things. And if it's machine learning, then the the algorithms are actually able to learn by conducting tasks over and over again and get get smarter um, at what they are doing or, or the tasks that they've been set out to do, often without any explicit need to further code them. So if, if that's AI, let's now look at where any sort of gender or sexism problems come in and there's multiple levels of it. So the first would be to do with the data. So data and big data is the core thing used to train algorithms. Now, if we are using historical data sets, then these data sets often do not have a great or fair representation of women. And the example uh, in the last 12 months of, of Goldman Sachs and Apple releasing their automated Apple card was a great example of that, where on average, women got 10 times less credit than men or males with the same credit history, because that algorithm had been trained on historical data, which already had a, an underrepresentation of, of women. We see the same when it was Amazon trying to recruit uh, into staff into Amazon. The algorithms have been trained on all the top performers in Amazon, which were predominantly male. So then when the algorithm was trying to recommend people to for a job, anyone that mentioned the word woman on their CV was excluded. And so that's where we start with the data. If the data is just historical data that already 
not only women, but may miss Indigenous people or uh, minorities or people of colour, then already the algorithm is going to be problematic. And the trick with AI is it very efficiently puts this to scale. So that's where the danger comes. It puts it to scale. Uh, So for example, the Apple Card was released globally. You then have a, a, a bias algorithm providing credit globally straight away. So that's a real challenge. Then when we get through to the other parts of the AI uh, components, that starts to influence the analytics, the decision-making, and then the automation against women. And that all starts with the bias. So that, that's one example of bias. The next level of bias that we, we see is there are very few women in the AI field. So it's around one in 10 jobs globally are held by females in AI and, and much fewer at leadership level. So now we have these algorithms being trained predominantly by young men. And so in there, we start to see other biases against women, consciously or unconsciously, being programmed into the machines. The third level of bias we see is that we know by 2025, 85 million jobs will be replaced by artificial intelligence machines and 92 million jobs will have been created. But let's go with the 85 million. These 85 million jobs will be the entry-level jobs of industries like retail, hospitality, tourism, banking, finance, insurance, telecommunications, where women, minorities, and youth would typically perhaps find some entry-level work. Now, these are the jobs that'll be automated by robots, machines, RPA, virtual assistants, et cetera. And 90% of those 85 million jobs will be the jobs of women and minorities. So again, now we start seeing a bias toward uh, against women with regard to the, the jobs that are being removed. And then the jobs that are being created will be much more strongly around engineering, data science, uh, mathematics, which again, typically has not had as great a representation historically by women as, as by men. But also in the, these new jobs will be jobs around creativity, design, things that, that perhaps women are more oriented to. But there is a gap and there's very few training, re, re, mass retraining programs in place for, I mean, federal government is going to do something in Australia, but there's very few training programs. So that's where there are a couple of areas where we're seeing bias against women related to AI and machine learning. There's so much to go into and in that there's some really fascinating, some really fascinating stuff. The first one that I want to unpack a little bit with you is how the data sets don't have a, a good enough representation of women. And the couple of examples that you mentioned are totally endemic. So many different industries are trying to use, you know, AI to recommend candidates and what have you. Do you think that there is perhaps a misunderstanding of the technology that's holding back the discussion in that area? Firstly, in that where you have an AI system, when you train that system on a data set of historic hires, is your system not predicting something slightly different to what you think that it is? If you've set your your team the task of training an AI that's going to recommend you good candidates and you train it on a, a history of past candidates, are you not actually training a machine to predict who you would have hired in the past, assuming the same uh, hiring team? Yeah, that's exactly what you'll do. You'll, you'll just repeat the past. And that's the real risk, Adam, is we, we've put society's historical biases in the machines, automated 
at scale. That's the risk. Is that not going to hurt the bottom line of companies that employ those kind of AI? So if, if the machine is recommending not the best candidate for the role, but who we would have previously put into that role, you know, that surely is something that the company is incentivized to to circumvent, right? To find an AI, perhaps, or something, some other system that can give them better recommendations. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, but let me kind of go into that a little bit. So I'm uh, one of the executive directors at the Gradient Institute, which is Australia's um, leading not-for-profit, responsible AI uh, research training uh, organization. And what we see is that there's so little understanding from the board and executive and senior management around ethical and responsible AI encoding that often these decisions are pushed down to the engineers for quite junior engineers to be making the decision about what is ethical and what is not. And often there is just a line and Adam, you'll know this being a data scientist, um, a line of best fit that you go, all right, we'll, we'll manipulate the variables for this to be the line and above the line, women get credit and below the line, they don't. And and someone makes that decision about where where is that line? What is ethical? What is not? And often it is not senior management because they do not understand machine learning and data. So it's pushed down to the engineers and the engineers are there going, well, we have to make these decisions. Who are we? to make those decisions. And it's interesting, right, because what you're really saying is that AI systems are human creations. We are making those decisions. They're informed by people. And reality is, Katrina, that I suppose there are very far fewer females. What is the impact of that, do you think? These companies are going in using machines or algorithms that have bias in them, then maybe that will not be a good story for them in the future because that'll have to impact it. Or if they're not hiring women into these roles, we already know that teams with uh, good representation of women and other minorities perform better than all male teams. So we, we know that. We'll see over the longer term that these companies will will not uh, prosper as those who have really embraced diversity and, and removed bias. But in the interim, there's still a lot of very difficult and bad things and that could happen and particularly to, to women and minorities around, and th- we've just been talking today around things such as recruitment or, or, or credit giving. What about border control? What about passports? What about how refugees are selected to come in to the country or not come into the country? How do we think about this when we get to warfare? How do we think about this when we get to automated machines like self-driving cars? This is when it starts to get very serious around actual physical danger to humans. And I, I was very interested to learn that the Netherlands government in 2023 are hosting the world's first largest AI, responsible AI and military conference. So we're going to start seeing more conversations about how a lack of responsible or ethical AI will start to play out in these bigger, bigger topics where human lives are genuinely at risk. Yeah. And I think there'll be much, much broader topics raised than just those that are related to AI. There's one other concept I wanted to bounce off you, which is kind of inspired by my favorite quote in data science, which is that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And what I really love about that is that it's very humbling. We have a tendency to to rely heavily on AI and to treat it as some kind of an oracle, some kind of a, you know, the authority on any subject is whatever is coming out of the AI system. But what really AI does is um, is instantiate perhaps the best possible or best available data representation 
there is then still the distinction between what is and what ought. So that if you've got a model which is telling you here's what the best guess might be, there's still ultimately the need for somebody to make that manifest in the form of a decision and an action. So what are your thoughts on the demarcation of responsibility there between, for example, the engineers in the team, which is just preparing the best possible representation that they can, and the uh, perhaps HR team that ultimately has to make the decision about who exactly amongst those candidates we're going to hire. Yeah, it's such such a great um, scenario or proposition that you raised. So, so I see that they can't be divorced from each other. If it is HR using a AI-based or machine learning-based recruitment app, then they have to be intimately involved in what that design is and where that that line is and, and start to learn to understand. Do not leave it just to the to the determination of the, the data scientists. And I, I don't say that because I, I think data scientists are um, biased, but it is not their role to decide on what that outcome is. It is the business owner uh, or the product owner or the service owner that needs to be making those determinations. So it's just no good to delegate to the tech team to go and build these things and run them. The actual business owner must become aware of this. And so we're doing uh, a gradient. We do training of boards and executive teams. And I'm so stunned every time we do, we're starting at AI 101. So really very, very basic for many, many executives, particularly in Australia, where we are a long way behind in our embracing and knowledge of AI than other countries. Executives have very little understanding of what AI is. And that poses a huge risk to their to their companies. And I know that Accenture is uh, released a study that showed that 58% of CEOs globally have a concern that AI will be the greatest risk they have in creating unintended harms in the world. So that's six in 10 CEOs now sitting up at night worried about this. So does that mean, Katrina, when you are doing the training on AI, you're also doing training on gender bias, on bias itself? Uh, because you're talking about unintended harms and really I think AI systems do reinforce existing harmful stereotypes or prejudices because of exactly what we're speaking about. So, you know, is this work actually really then about bias awareness in general? So if we do any training on AI machine learning, we start with the basics of what it is and what it isn't. And then we absolutely will do, this is responsible AI, this is ethical AI, the two things being different. So ethical AI is just a component of responsible AI. And we go into explaining what bias is, how bias can be created by the data, by the machines, and why you might not want to have a bias outcome. What are some obvious examples? Is is it in language? Is it in how data is collected? What are some good examples? Yeah, so good examples are uh, not necessarily, well, it can be how data is collected. And there are now companies starting to come out who, and I, and I looked at one, so I'm also the, the chair of, as you both know, Boab AI. We were looking at a I looked at a young company that is being set up to do just that ethical, responsible AI data collection. So this is going to be a, a new field. So that that's very interesting. So it's how it's collected and who it's collected from, the data that is collected, the algorithms, are this, and are the algorithms best fit for the particular problem or goal that you're trying to solve? Um, all of this needs some careful care, but a combination of business and engineering 
or data scientist type people. That That's the way through. And so this is really a retraining and reskilling, not just of the uh, data scientists. And we, we train data scientists and engineers on how to code ethically. It's a two-day course where they get hands-on into data and learn how to do it. But above that, it is training the executives to understand this bias, understand all the areas it can come into and what to do about it. That sounds like a fantastic exercise. More executives need this knowledge. And that is just a wonderful thing that, that you're helping to get them that knowledge. The next thing down that you mentioned earlier of the pillars of, of risk is that women don't work in AI. And you very graciously made the assertion that data scientists are not biased. But of course, we know that they are. Everyone is biased in some respect. But it, it does seem to be that it's the grand pursuit of data science as an enterprise to eliminate as much bias as we possibly can and thus deliver models that will matter maximize the objective or the, you know, the cost function that our business is going to make use of. So when you say that men are coding bias, and particularly you said young men code bias into, into their models, how does that happen? I think it probably starts, and this Christy kind of builds on your last question too, is when, if we think of the basic way that uh, algorithms are trained, it's, it's taking data, it's tagging it or classifying it, and it's using those classifications to then train the algorithms. And if it's predominantly men and young men who are doing that tagging of the data, then that's when we'll start seeing the bias sneak in. And in my public speaking, you I, I know Christy for sure has seen this, I do these great exercises where I go, okay, like I'm a professor, just have a look at me and now Google professor style. And what will come up will be, actually, Adam, you would fit it very well. White, um, young men who wear tweed coats. And glasses. And glasses. There's no like red-haired, uh, you know, jeans-wearing uh, professor woman um, that comes up. And when uh, the classic one, which I've done for years and years and years, which is unpro- unprofessional hairstyles, unprofessional hairstyles uh, used to come up with only with women of colour with cornrows um, in their hair. There was no white women. So what does that mean? That means somebody has trained the algorithms to know that unprofessionalism will probably be women of colour and professors will probably be white men with glasses. So that's human coding. And I would think probably a woman hasn't coded that. So tell me, Katrina, what can machine learning developers, what can the data scientists do? I mean, I'm hearing from you that data science needs feminism. (laughs) Yes. So what can be done? Uh, What are the practical things? Yeah. So I think it's super important that uh, data scientists know about responsible AI frameworks. And that's everything from governance through to monitoring, through to AI assessments, through to reporting through to having councils, et cetera. Um, So there's a whole governance framework in Responsible AI. Then into the eight ethical AI principles for them to really understand those. And I'll I'll race through those very quickly so that the AI that the data scientists are building uh, does not discriminate. It must not be unfair. It must be designed with human society and the environment in mind, must not come at a cost there. It must have human-centered values at its core. It must adhere to privacy and security requirements. It must be reliable and safe, must be transparent and accountable, must be contestable. And whoever is building the AI, if it causes harm, they must be held accountable. So for them to understand, I think if they just understood that that is the ethical principles, then they would definitely think carefully about how they they might uh, be doing their work. And then I think it's about being trained. So being trained in how to make these decisions about the models and the data and and how to to code ethically. And 
Yeah, and I think they would be great places to to start. Um, it at um, Gradient, we're going to in the next couple of months uh, launch a community called the RAI Exchange, where we ask data scientists and different business leaders to come into different groups, and we'll start making this type of information more available to to data scientists in particular. So there are all sorts of other types of model testing, best fit testing, uh, and and tools that we're now seeing coming into the market for data scientists to use to see whether there is unintended, potential unintended outcomes from from the work that they're doing. Um, So that there are a whole bunch of tools and part of the gradients teaching is teaching data scientists about that. I love the concept of doing AI systems assessments uh, regularly where uh, potentially an external party comes in and assesses the AI systems that are in place and then gives feedback to data scientists about how they can be improved to be more responsible. And we will see more software coming to market, but that's actually a risk too, because we've been approached by a number of international companies who have these responsible AI tools, which we're very worried then that people go, oh, we've bought this responsible AI tool, we'll plug it in. And look, now we're responsible and now we're ethical. And that is very, very, very dangerous. Yeah, because one of the things we've talked a lot about today is, you know, how do you uncover bias uh, from business leaders perspective? We talked about data scientists, engineers, but then there's that whole ecosystem of people who are involved in creating applications for machine learning and AI across the system, which includes custodians, storytellers, analysts, domain experts as well. So I suspect through the RAI exchange that you're facilitating, which sounds fantastic, then all people across the ecosystem will be able to participate and better better uncover what those bias might be. Right. Absolutely. Uh, that, that will be one of the purpose of the exchange. And I think you're both aware that last year we released Australia's first responsible AI index where we surveyed 416 Australian-based organisations to measure their maturity with regard to responsible AI. And the result there was that only 8% of organisations were mature, had any type of maturity, and less than 30% had actually done anything or implemented anything. So we regard that as a responsible AI gap, and that is you know, very prevalent in Australia as Australia is only just kind of really coming to the AI market and and starting to learn about responsible AI now. So the next thing down that you mentioned earlier that, and that's just, this is a, a shocking statistic, so it really took me by surprise, but that 90% of entry level jobs, I think you said, were going to women and minorities. Could you say more about what those jobs are and why it is that they are so heavily skewed towards women and minorities? Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned the the industries, but if we think of that, it's, it's a lot of the frontline roles. So it's a lot of the call center jobs, administration jobs, hospitality, retail, all going online, virtual assistants and other automated programs doing things online, but also now back-end work. So a lot of robotic process automation has gone into the back-end of businesses like financial services, insurance, telecommunications, where again, these were jobs that were uh, done by often women and, and minorities because they they are entry level more administrative or customer service type jobs which have typically been the jobs of um, women minorities and youth so it, it is the uh, those jobs that are predicted to be automated and if we look in financial services within the next three years forty percent of those jobs globally will be done by AI or machines uh, so it's forty percent of the financial services sector jobs not just those admin 
admin job. So we will see this started to come very, very, very fast. And then the other interesting statistic by 2030, so another eight years in Australia, Australia needs another 160,000 data scientists in order to keep up and participate internationally in AI. Where are we going to get those people from? And how many of them are going to be women is, is a big question that I have. It sounds like a great opportunity. So what's standing in the way? Well, I uh, love your enthusiasm. And uh, and one of the last things that I would like to share with you both, um, not so much about how do we get women into those roles, but of course, I will forever be committed to that, is I would actually like to be commissioner of the metaverse. And Katrina, we are backing you all the way on that. So where do we sign and uh, how do we vote? <laughs> exactly. Is this like where you have to officially launch a campaign and so now people have to be careful if they're going to donate money to you? Adam, surely you're following Katrina online because in every post she's putting her head up, hand up for this yeah, important role. commissioner for the metaverse. <laughs> yeah. it, it did actually start as a joke with me and... Um, uh, Minister Dominello, and then then I'm now quite serious. Yeah. No, but seriously, how do you get that job? And is it global? <laughs> Let's start locally and and then we'll see how that progresses. Well, well, we'll lobby for that. And meanwhile, we also continue to lobby for bias-free or gender-smart machine learning and AI, which is really important today on International Women's Day, but also for all of us as we work toward breaking bias across all parts of society. And that actually, as we've discussed today, is about our own awareness, where that bias sits. And similarly, then how are we creating environments that are safe for uh, people to be inclusive in that work? Thanks for bringing you know, to light so many of these things that you think about and work on day to day. In one minute or less, what's your prediction for how the metaverse and these issues are going to expand in the next 12 months? Yeah, so the metaverse will really take off predominantly when a couple of the other tech giants get involved. So we're waiting to see whether Apple adopts any role in the metaverse. They've shied away from it at the moment. At the moment, Apple does anything on its operating platform, then that's when we'll see it go to scale. But we will see a great uptake in metaverse. There's no question about this. This thing is here, it's now, uh, and it's, it's actually fabulous. So I'm actually a massive fan of the metaverse. Love it. I'm deeply worried about the danger and the risks that it poses, particularly to women and children. And I will dedicate majority of my life and time to making sure that this is as safe a place as it possibly can be. Thank you very much, Dr. Wallace. Thanks, Katrina. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy. And this is Adam on The Foil Podcast. Check us out on www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials. Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our guests, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time.